All right, good morning. Um, my name is Donnie Epp, and uh, I am a uh, participant in the weekly teaching team. And as Jeff mentioned earlier, this is going to be a little bit of a collaborative effort uh, between a few of us um, to bring um, some thoughts. And then we're going to kick it to you. Um, I heard some awesome, just in our little group here, there was some pretty fantastic just reflection just now, and we'll hope to kind of keep that going. Um, so uh, we're breaking our scripture up. There's kind of three pieces of scripture that are part of our lectionary reading this morning, and I'm going to cover kind of the first bit of that scripture. So if you would, I'm going to read that. We'll have it up on, on the slide, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. So we're in 2 Samuel 5. And all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, saying, Look, we are your very flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the real leader in Israel. The Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. You will rule over Israel. When all of the leaders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, King David made an agreement with them at Hebron before the Lord. They designated David as king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned for 33 years over all Israel and Judah. You pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we look at these vignettes that describe your character, as we look at your word, I pray that you would give us deep insight about who has the right to rule and what our role in that is. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for this time that we can study it together and talk to each other about what it means to follow you. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we closed out our summer study, um, we jumped back into the narrative lectionary. And you have heard this spiel probably a thousand times if you've been coming. But the narrative lectionary is a selection of scriptures. And it's an, on an annual rotation. And the design of that lectionary is to provide vignettes of God's character and of the Bible, kind of a, a flyover, if you will, um, to draw out certain character traits of God and also just kind of revelations from Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, um, and this is really the, the crux of what I wanted to share this morning, I've had a hard time uh, with this series since August, really understanding how all of these lectionary pieces fit together. Um, and so I wanted to share with you one potential thread. This is not the end-all, be-all. It's just one vector um, through this that I think might be there. Um, and, I, and in doing that, I want to provide a disclaimer. We talked about, Jeff and, and Ryan and I talked about this um, yesterday. A couple things. One, uh, I'm just the guy holding the mic right now. So anything I say, you should absolutely filter through your own discernment, your own study, and your own experience. Um, the other thing that I will say is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like touch the glass surface of an issue that's been discussed uh, over centuries and has not been resolved by people much smarter than me, and I'm not attempting to solve it today. We're not going to solve it today. So as you see where I'm going with this, if you're familiar with, uh, with some of these topics, just know that I, just know, that I know, <laughs> and we're not going to try to solve it today. So um, we're dropping into 2 Samuel. We see David being appointed as king. So he had already been appointed as king over one of the tribes. Now he's being appointed as king over the entire nation of Israel. And it's taken us all of 1 Samuel and the first four chapters of 2 Samuel to get to this point. And it was no short or simple process. But it's clear that God has cultivated David for this moment. 
And it's a little bit odd when you start to think about the fact that God has prepared David for this and that God is working for the benefit of the people of Israel. Because back in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel beg for a king. They go to Samuel and they say, we want a king. And Samuel says, this is not the plan. This is not God's purpose. And God says, this is not my purpose. But they insist. And so God allows them to appoint a king. And they appoint King Saul. And uh, if you're familiar with, with his reign, you're familiar with how that kind of turned out. And so here we see a nation seeking a king, which is expressly not God's plan and not his purpose. And yet, as the people choose that, he immediately begins to work their choice back towards their good, establishing David to replace Saul. So it seems to suggest that in some cases, at least, we have a tremendous amount of room to make influential, reality-altering decisions, not only about our individual story, but also about our collective story. So I want to draw out that freedom as we look at, um, since, since August, the scriptures that we've covered. So we started in Genesis, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a specific slant on each of these to make a point, so just hold that in space. Um, we look first in Genesis at the Garden of Eden, where we see the freedom to choose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We often refer to this portion of scripture as the fall, but it is also the first time that we see a cosmic, world-altering proof that God is going to let us make choices. We then move to Genesis 18, where Isaac is born to Sarah, and we see this whole interaction between God and Abraham and Sarah, and we see a couple of things here. One, we see a freedom to deviate from God's plan for his people with Ishmael and and, uh, and Hagar, but we also see something, and we focused on, in on that laugh. We see a freedom to question God, and, or to, uh, to laugh with God, and potentially even at God, depending on how you want to read that. Um, when you think about the ruler of the universe and the creator of our reality, that's a pretty incredible um, discovery that we have that ability and that freedom. We then move into Genesis 32, where we see Jacob wrestle with God, and we have this really odd story of how he, he, he wrestles and his hip gets you know, displaced, and we see here a real freedom to challenge God and to wrestle with him and still come out alive and to survive that. We then look at Exodus, and this is where God visits Moses as he's shepherding flocks and calls him to free the people of Israel, and we see here a freedom with Moses to question God's decision-making and his judgment. Um, if we blow out that scripture, we didn't get into all of it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I mean, for, for like 50 verses, Moses questions God's judgment. Like, are you sure about this? We then go to Deuteronomy, and we talk about the Ten Commandments. And John, I thought, highlighted this um, in a very interesting way. Um, the Ten Commandments, as the people are leaving slavery, 400 years of slave patterns in their thinking and their daily habits, God gives them the Ten Commandments, which are rules that give the, uh, there are rules for living outside of slavery. And so the Ten Commandments and the law give us freedom to leave slavery and our slave mindset. Then last week we look at Ruth, and we see Ruth and Orpah make two very different decisions for different reasons. And we see Ruth have the freedom to make life choices. Probably not the one that I would advise my kids to make um, if, they were in that, and if they were in that situation. But she makes a choice, and she has the freedom to make that choice, as does Orpah. Then we land here at 2 Samuel. 
And we see David anointed as king. We see Israel appointing a king despite it not being God's purpose. And we see here a very clear freedom to choose or at least have some influence over who's going to rule. So on one hand, I think we see clear evidence that God is intimately involved and intricately involved in defining the details of our life from fruit eating to childbearing and all throughout scripture we see God involved in our world and in our reality and in our lives. But we also see a commitment, a dogged commitment to allowing us to make decisions that also shape that reality. So John shared a quote in our teaching team this week that I thought was a nice kind of container to consider this. He said, "It's possible that not everything happened, that not everything that happens is God's will." But everything that happens is within his will. Not everything that happens is God's will, but everything that happens is within his will. And so as a way of exploring that idea, I wanted to give you three metaphors to consider. And then I'm going to kick you guys a question about this. The first is um, a connected dots drawing. So I have a picture up here. You guys can probably figure out what that's going to be. Very popular at my house right now. First, the connect the dots drawing. A connect the dots drawing prescribes each step. You can see each dot is numbered, and there's really only one path between the dots. And once the path is completed, you can see the whole picture. It's not unlike a very common view of God's interaction in our reality. So we look at the context of our scripture today, and God allows the people to live and be ruled by a king despite being outside his plan and his purpose, which seems to contradict the idea of this metaphor when applied to our interaction with God. So I don't think this is it. On the other hand, I don't think it's this next one. And uh, if you're a Jackson Pollock fan, I apologize, but all the man does is sling paint on canvas. So you might be tempted to look at this and review your own life and say, no, actually, I think this is a pretty good metaphor. Um, for how things are going right now. Um, And I will admit that sometimes this is the way that I feel about my life. But I think we see also in our scripture and the appointment of David as king that this isn't it. And so I want to give you, and if we have any master weavers in the room, this is about to get uh, real cringy for you. Um, I do do have a third metaphor that I want to bring to you to explore this idea. So uh, this is a loom. This is a huge loom. And there are a couple of components to a loom. You have the wooden frame, kind of the context in which uh, this tapestry is going to be woven. Uh, and then you have two parts of the thread that make up the, uh, the end weave. The first is the warp. And you'll see this. This is kind of the, ba- the thread base for the rest of the tapestry. It's established before the weaver even begins. And it's kind of part of this template. Then you have the weft which is the thread that goes in between the warp to to end up creating that tapestry. And so as a metaphor for our interaction with God in the scripture, here's kind of the point that I'm trying to make. God is shaping and has defined our reality. He is the maker of the loom and the warp. But I think in this, we also see a tremendous potential for us in the weft to shape our own reality. We see his power withheld so that we can make decisions. 
but then we immediately see him come behind and begin to work together for our good. And this is a little bit confusing, but when I think about it in the context of my family, this happens with my kids all of the time. Um, They make decisions that I wouldn't have picked. Um, Some of you may have kids that always make the right decision. Um, Tell me how that works, and uh, I would like to learn your ways. Uh, But they contradict my plans and my purpose all of the time. But even in that, I immediately go to work for their good. Likewise, I think God allows us to make decisions and co-create our reality even when they contradict his perfect plan. And in his grace and his mercy, he comes behind our decisions to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We see that in Romans. And so with that, similar to how we do the discussion question when the kids leave, if you would, find some folks near you and discuss this question. So I've given a few metaphors here. But consider this, is the idea that we are co-creators with God frightening, exhilarating, or completely ridiculous to you, and why? My name is Ryan, and like Donnie, uh, I'm also involved in our teaching team, and uh, I'm going to walk us through the second portion of our scripture this morning. Uh, And so like like Donnie talked about, uh, you know, the the first thing that we glean from from our scripture is that uh, God gives us uh, the freedom uh, to make choices, life-altering choices, uh, and and then there's grace in that freedom. Uh, The second thing that this text shows us is uh, that God gives us the freedom to discern those choices and what those choices mean, uh, and and that he allows us to experience him in that discernment. And so uh, I'm not going to read uh, each verse of, of this next uh, section of scripture. It will be on the screen behind me. Um, but it's coming from 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it is a story of King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So like Donnie walked us through, uh, David becomes anointed king of Israel, and one of the first things he does is bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, for simplicity's sake, it's a really fancy box that uh, houses some of the most important artifacts from the history of Israel. Uh, But more importantly than that, it represents the uh, faithfulness and the physical manifestation of the presence of God. And so this is a a really significant act in Old Testament history for David to do this because uh, in doing this, he is unifying uh, all 12 tribes of Israel and saying, okay, Jerusalem is going to be our capital. It's going to be the center of our our spiritual and political lives, and I am founding my kingdom on the faithfulness and presence of God. And so if you've read uh, through the life of David, you know uh, that... uh, He is a very well-thought-of king, but he makes some uh, deplorable choices that will have far-reaching consequences, not only for himself and his family, but for the entire nation. And so uh, Israel is is going to have to walk through this tension uh, because of some of the choices that that David has made. So uh, last time I was up here, I told a story about my grandfather. I'm going to tell another one. Um, in the 50s, uh, my grandfather was working in Oregon, and he, uh, in about a 48-hour period, he borrowed a car and drove to Arkansas, about a 40-hour drive uh, in 48 hours, and uh, he drove back in an attempt to prevent his younger sister from marrying somebody that he thought was not going to be good for her. And uh, his attempt failed, and they got married a few months later, and uh, as my grandpa recalled it 60 years later, uh, his commentary was uh, short but effective. He said, 
there was a lot of good that came out of this marriage, but also a lot of heartache. And that is David's kingship. There is a, there is a lot of good that comes out of this, this kingship, but a lot of heartache as well. And, and so um, Israel now has to, has to look at themselves and say, okay, we wanted a king, and we were warned that it might not be the best thing for us, but we said we wanted it anyway, and we got the guy we wanted, Saul, and that didn't work out, so we got the next guy we wanted, David, and he was really great, uh, but some of his choices uh, have, have uh, given us a lot of problems. And, uh, and this is real life, right, because our choices, our lives are, are a conglomeration of the choices we've made, good, bad, and everything in between. Um, and there's tension here because we want to quickly classify and categorize things as good or bad, right? This person's good, this person's bad. Uh, this choice was good, this choice was bad. But this text, it really doesn't give us the luxury of reducing, that thi- of reducing these things to that level of simplicity. It's a, a little bit more messy than that. Um, and in, in no more place are we looking for that level of simplicity uh, than, than in our religion, right? We, we look at God, how we view God, and we say, okay, if I do good, God loves me, and if I do bad, God's mad at me. And, uh, and so we've got this really strong, a lot of times, uh, reward and punishment system. This is uh, really um, hits home for me because uh, my mother... Uh, is a great woman, and she's nothing if not organized. And so uh, growing up, um, and I had three siblings, we had on the inside of one of our closet doors uh, a chart that was illustrated uh, with uh, different areas of disobedience and the corresponding punishment. And so anytime we acted out of line, uh, my mother would uh, simply just walk with us to the closet, open the door, and say, okay, uh, because you talked back, uh, this is the the, uh, punishment that you'll receive. And this is brilliant, right, because uh, it keeps everybody accountable. I know if, if I act out of line, I know exactly what I'm going to get. And that also prevents my mom from uh, punishing me uh, inconsistently, right? If she's in a good mood or a bad mood or whatever, whatever happens, uh, I, I know what I'm in for, and she knows what she's in for. And for kids, that's really, really brilliant. So my mom will probably listen to this on podcast. So mom, thank you for you know, this, this structure. Um, but the reality is, regardless of our reward system, at some point, right, we, we leave our parents' house. And we find that uh, life is a little bit more complex than the reward system that, that we've experienced. And so uh, what do we do? Well, we, we begin to look for a shortcut or formula that's going to give us the reward. And, and it doesn't take long before uh, a myriad of voices will promise uh, to take us to the life that we want. And Christians can sometimes be the worst at this because uh, they'll say, hey, uh, get in line behind my cause, uh, and this is how you'll really live with purpose. This is what will really make your life matter. Uh, but, and if you don't, uh, there's an insinuation that you're actually disobeying Scripture. But we find that when we, you know, when we hitch our caboose to, to any train uh, that, that promises to give us the life we want, um, it doesn't take long to figure out that that, that kind of overpromised and underdelivered. And uh, so, why is that the case? Well, uh, that's the case because if there was a shortcut, if there was a formula uh, to, to creating the life of peace, uh, if God gave us a shortcut, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have to give us himself. And so, that's really the antidote to this conundrum that we find ourselves in, right? This conundrum that, that um, my reward system's not as, not as cut and dry as I thought it was. The, 
the life that I want and getting there is not as cut and dry as, as I thought it was, uh, and there's no shortcut to get there. Um, but see, for the rest of the Old Testament, Israel will grapple with the fallout of the decisions of this time period in their history. They'll, they'll grapple with the fallout of the, the decisions that David has made and his son Solomon has made and Solomon's sons have made. And the rest of the Old Testament, God says to Israel, see me, seek me, return to me, because I am the source of your flourishing. I am the gift. And then he sends the one who's prophesied, the one is called, who is called the true and perfect David, uh, the benevolent king in whom there is no fault. And he says, if you will stake your life on this person and work of Jesus, I will say of you what I said of him, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And it is through that lens, through the grace of God, that we get to discern the choices that we've made, good, bad, everything in between, and their outcomes. And with that identity, that is how we experience and acknowledge the grace of God. And We'll walk us through one more piece of scripture as we lead into our communion time. If you want to flash that up on the screen, um, as Donnie and Ryan talked about, this wasn't the um, initial plan that we see in First um, Samuel. And so, when we read a piece of scripture from Samuel uh, that he actually warned the people of what would happen if they, you know, made this choice to um, have an earthly king, and they. Um, spoiler, they all, it all happened, um, and they asked for it anyway after this, after this warning. So we'll read this and then contrast um, that with another piece as well. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, here are the policies of the king who will rule over you. He will conscript your sons, put them in his chariot forces and his cavalry. They will run in front of his chariot. He will appoint for himself leaders of thousands and leaders of 50, as well as those who plow the ground, reap his harvest, make his weapons of war and his chariot equipment. He will take your daughters to be ointment makers, cooks and bakers. He will take your best fields and vineyards, give them to his own servants. He will demand a tenth of your seed and of the produce of your vineyards and give it to his administrators and his servants. He will take your male and female servants as well as your best cattle, your donkeys, and assign them for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will be his servants. In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you in that day. And so I want to contrast that with um, what we see that um, God gives us as the model um, the king of kings who came to the earth, not only to be the perfect king replacing in where David failed or where Saul failed, but to establish a brand new kingdom, an entirely different kingdom, one that looks completely different from the kingdoms of the world and the ones that we would expect. So if you would put up the peace in Philippians. Let this mind be in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in the form of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
As Christ continued to show us how radically different his kingdom is and what he as the king looks like, um, on the night that he was betrayed, he took water and washed his disciples' feet, um, continuing to humble himself and um, show that his kingdom is about really embodying the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And then he went and he gave the last commandment and he said, um, as I have loved you, so you should love others. And went and showed us um, what that love looks like as he broke himself. His body was broken for us. and His blood spilled out for us. The last piece of scripture we'll read um, in our text is from Psalms 150, written by um, David. And in response to all this that we know about Christ um, and our response, we have the freedom to respond in praise um, and worship to him. It says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in the sky, which testifies to his strength. Praise him for his mighty acts, praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the blast of the horn, praise him with the lyre and the harp. Praise him with the tambourines and with dancing, praise him with stringed instruments and the flute. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen.